Um, Tish Harrison Warren is a name you've heard me quote of late, even most recently at our congregational meeting a couple weeks ago. She's an Anglican priest from my home state of Texas. She wrote a book last year called Liturgy of the Ordinary. It, uh, Christianity Today called it the Book of the Year, all about how she's just, as a priest and a mom, uh, learning how to use the daily warp and woof of her life to practice the presence of God. Um, a few weeks ago, she gave an interview to a, a podcast I really recommend that you hear called Vocation and the Common Good, um, led by some folks over in Charlottesville. And in that interview, she was rather candid about what had happened to her of late. Um, she had a, she lost a second child in birth, um, and her life was in danger for a season in that moment. And, uh, By her own admission, uh, she said this, um, my response to that season has been craving beauty and craving silence voraciously. I can't read most theological books. They make me angry, not because they're wrong, but because they're not beautiful. They're not written beautifully. Why would she say something like that in the wake of the tragedy that she just experienced? I... I think it might be this, and I, it's not something I intuit from what she says. It's pretty much what she says explicitly, is that um, there is in birth, though it happens 372,000 times every day on the planet. It's not just a statistic. That anybody is a witness to it or one who is experiencing that, that, that in itself is a beauty because that in itself is an opportunity for love that has no comparison which therefore then compounds the tragedy of when that moment does not reach the outcome that everybody had hoped for. In the tragedy, there is still beauty, because in that beauty there is love. And that's why I think a show like Call the Midwife, and it's about about a bunch of nurses and nuns that help deliver babies, and like that happens every day, and it's in a blue-collar, you know, working-class environment of East London. Why, Why would you make a show about that? Because look, Even in a moment like that, that happens that many times every single day, there is a glory. There is a beauty. Because there is a love. If you have been with us in this season of um, our preaching life together, we've been listening to a letter from the Apostle Paul that he wrote to a bunch of fledgling churches in what is now the south of Turkey. And if you've leaned in or if you've read that letter um, on a regular basis, um, let's just admit, sometimes it feels like a real slog. Because he's pulling up categories and rituals and stories and making arguments and working through a set of logical um, arguments that you go, okay, I'm trying to understand. And it is work. And you do have to lean into it, but sometimes it just feels like a slog. Today, this passage, it is a lot less about Paul's effort to make a logical argument than it is an effort to hear the love behind what he's out to do. And the reason I will argue that is because he will speak of his care for these churches in Galatia as one of anguish. And that anguish he can only liken to what a mother must feel in childbirth. The anguish of bringing forth a child. And so late in this passage you will hear Paul say, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He has been making an argument, and he will continue to make a kind of an argument. But if all you hear is logic, you are not listening. 
Because nobody talks about anguish of childbirth unless it is in love for those unto whom he's written this letter. And I hope that's what we might hear today. He is anguished to see them come forth fully and wholly and beautifully into that fullness of what it means to be a child of God. And so he speaks rather beautifully to this whole metaphor of childbirth and being formed, of Christ being formed in them. It's that word formed that we want to use as an anchor to wade through this passage today because it is, forgive me, a pregnant term. You and I will speak often about what it means to believe in Jesus and what we must believe in Jesus to know that we are His. But believing will always have an intention and that intention is that we would be formed into that belief. That we will become that which we have come to believe. And that's the idea, that's the category we want to sit with this morning as we listen to what Paul has to say. And so when it comes to being having Christ formed in us, we want to ask three questions. What does that mean? What are the marks of being thusly formed? And then, how does it happen? By what means does it happen? What, by what strength does it happen? What do we mean to have Christ formed in us? What are the marks of it? And, and we're going to hear Paul speak rather anecdotally about that to get a sense of what are the marks of that formation. And then finally, how does it happen? That's what we're going to do. We're in Galatians 4, starting in verse 8. If you're able, I wonder if you might stand to hear. Galatians 4, starting in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. This is the anguished word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Formed. The Greek word is morphou. It's where you and I get our word morph. They morphed into this. They morphed into that. Shapeshifters. That's who morphs, right? That's the language he's getting at here. And what he is anguished about is nothing. He he can only hearken to the very idea of being anguished like a mother in childbirth. 
He longs, as any mother would, to bring forth a whole, healthy, fully ready-to-meet-this-world child. And so in another letter that he writes to the church at Corinth in chapter 4, and this is borrowing sort of some King James language, he says, In Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. It's certainly a metaphorical way of putting it, but he has labored, he has anguished to, to see them understand, to be persuaded, and begin to bear fruit. And so Paul, for these churches in Galatia, have been, in a sense, kind of like a midwife to help them see themselves come fully and fully formed. And yet, they themselves, he, he says that it's Christ being formed in them. So it's almost like they themselves are the ones in the midst of childbirth. So they're feeling the anguish too. That's his gig. That's what he's out to. That's what he's anguished over. But that all asks the question, what does it mean to have Christ formed in us? It's not complicated. It's not going to insult your intelligence, but it's just this. It's first of all just to believe to the depths everything that he's told them about Jesus. If you've been to Wakanda and you've seen Black Panther, then you know King T'Challa at some point just before he goes through his trial, he has to drink the water of his ancestors. And they show it very graphically where it's starting to work through his very bloodstream. It reaches into the depths of him. There is no part of him that is not affected by that which he is taking into himself. That's a picture of what it means to have Christ formed in you. To believe that the pardon of God in which every sin of yours, past, present, and future, is covered, that moves into you. To believe that you are reconciled unto God such that you may approach Him with confidence and with vulnerability and with great transparency, that has to work its way into you. To believe that God has given you His Spirit by which you cry out to Him, Abba, Father, and from which you get help in order to become like Him, that has to work through you. To believe that his inheritance, that he comes to you through Jesus, will neither fade with time nor be lost in death, that has to work its way into you. To see Christ formed in you is to believe that all that is yours in Jesus and that the only way, the only means by which you appropriate it is simply to believe that it's true. Not that you prove yourself worthy of receiving it, not that you show yourself that you can live into its glory or live up to its glory. This promise of God is yours by faith in it alone. And it's that truth and that gift and that grace that has to work its way into the entirety of your thinking, your feeling, your acting, your speaking. And so this, this having Jesus formed in you, it's a, it's a thing to be considering. It's a thing to be meditating on. I, I know it's always a, a temptation to think that, uh, that to believe is to have this really profound feeling. But, but actually, it's, it's about having a kind of knowledge. If you were listening closely, you heard Paul use the word know in some form or fashion at least three times there in the first couple words. And, and in, in using that word for knowledge, he's, he's saying that not all knowledge is the like. This, the, the, the knowledge of what 2 plus 2 equals 4 is is one thing, but it's not the same thing as knowing that the sun is warm, and it's not the same thing as knowing uh, the love of a friend. This knowledge of God is of a different character. It's of a different quality. And you hear that kind of knowledge or what he's speaking of when you listen to what he says in verses 8 and 9 again. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known 
by God. Okay. He doesn't even finish his sentence. He kind of, he kind of waxes on here because he's just sort of lost in his own reverie of knowing that he's known by God. This knowledge of God is far greater than just intellectualizing it. It's far greater than categorizing it. This is the knowledge of intimacy. This is the knowledge of knowing that you're known. Last week when we talked about the Holy Spirit, we said that it's the Holy Spirit that, that bears witness with our spirit, that, that somehow in the midst of our prayer, we, we are voicing what the Spirit is voicing in us. And, and when we address God as Father, it's because we are being vulnerable before transcendence. We are like being a child in a moment like that, who comes to their parents and cries out to them without having to, to, to scale their words or to speak in perfect sentences or to calculate every intention. They just sort of emote. They just speak whatever on their heart. This, this is the definition of intimacy and this is the kind of knowledge that Paul means when he talks about having Christ formed in them. Knowing that you're known. And in that knowledge, it is an experience of a sort. It's the experience of having been found. Or, in some occasions, of having been chased by God because you would just as soon run from Him and turn tail. It is sometimes the experience of having been exposed by Him where you are outed. You are seen fully for who you are, whether it's to yourself or to others. And it's in that moment that God exposes you, not in order to shame you, but in order to heal. This is the knowledge of intimacy. It's not being cataloged. It's about knowing that you're adored. When Jesus himself speaks in that famous parable about the, the, the one lost sheep, he says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 in the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it. Do you believe that's true of you? Do you believe that that's the kind of knowledge of God you're supposed to have? Because Jesus would seem to suggest that it is. You are known and you are adored. Um, there was a time when my kids, the uh, way they got their lunch, it was not, they didn't keep it in these uh, high-tech, temperature-controlled contraptions now. Um, there was a time where we just put them in bags. Uh, um, you know, you do what you got to do, right? Um, but in that season in which we put their lunches in paper sacks, I kind of developed a new habit. I would pull out a Sharpie. And I would write their names at the top of each bag, and then I would draw something um, artistic. And that's using the term artistic rather loosely. Um, But I would draw a superhero, or somebody they loved, or some toy that they might have really enjoyed, or some uh, character from fiction or or film that they were loving, and I would draw it. And at some point, they began to look forward to that. I don't know why, but they did. I'll tell you why I think. Because they knew, even in that small gesture, that they were known. And in being known, they knew at some level that they were being adored. Even though the art was terrible, there was in the art adoration. This knowledge of having Christ formed in you is to come to the conclusion that you are known through and through and yet loved anyway. Um, Sister Helen Jean Prejean is a name you might be familiar with. There was a, a film that came out several years ago with Sean Penn who played a, a death row convict. It was called Dead Man Walking. And it's a true story. She's a, she's a Catholic nun, um, and her ministry is to those on death row. And she will even be present at their execution to remind them that she loves them. And uh, when asked one time, why do you go 
to those whom society has essentially said, we are done with you and now we will discard you. Why do you go and love them? Nobody else will. And she said, the less forgivable the sin, the more it must be forgiven. The less lovable the person, the more you must find the means to love them. What she's doing there is not just her own sort of original intuition or belief that they ought to receive that kind of love. That's a theologically informed love. And it's why she goes. That no matter how much they have deserved whatever punishment they may get, she also says that they ought to receive the love of the Lord through her. This knowledge of God, of Christ being formed in you, is to know that you are known through and through and yet loved anyway. That's what it means to be formed in Him. Which all sounds wonderful and sweet, and it, it, it verges on the saccharine, on, on this sweet kind of endearment. But you, you need to know that to have Christ informed in you is in some ways God getting up in your business. Um, getting up in your face. There's an edge to this, having him formed in you, in at least two ways. One way is at the level of your allegiances. Let me unpack that for you. You, you saw it, it kind of whizzed by in verse 8, but he says, um, formerly when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. In his day, um, he's referring to uh, the Galatians who might have had a, a reverence for things or for people or for emperors or for their family, whatever it might be. Um, those things that they were in deep submission to. And Paul characterizes their submission to those things as nothing less than an enslavement. Why, why pick such a, a dramatic term to speak of that kind of loyalty? It's because he's saying that that kind of loyalty was shaped over a very long time and it is a loyalty that you do not simply flip off or switch off. What he's talking about is what we would like to call idolatry. Where you have come to value something so far in excess of its true value, but you don't know it and you don't care because you think that's what will make you whole. And we hear that and at first we hear the word idolatry and we think, wow, really old term, doesn't apply. And then you go, are you kidding me? Idolatry is as real in 2018 as it was in 2018 B.C. How do I know? Dale Carnegie said, every man must have an idol. He knew we're all bound to worship something even if we don't ascribe to it divinity. Uh, Tim Kreider, a far more contemporary voice, he, he says, why is it that we're so bewitched by celebrity? Why are we so consumed by it? Why, do we, why are we really like getting on everybody's Twitter feed about what Kylie and Chloe care about. It's because he would argue that when ideas about the divine get sort of marginalized and put to the sides and we don't really think about it, we still long to adore. We still long for something that is greater than ourselves. And so, you know what? Celebrity works for a while. And then you hear about the allegations and then you just switch celebrities. It's an ancient word, and it is a modern struggle, and it will be the struggle of humanity for as long as there's humanity. Uh, To explain what idolatry is in a little bit more contemporary cast, Thomas Oden said this, One has a God when a finite value is worshipped and adored and viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. 
Which is just a way of saying, there's stuff in your life that has been cultivated over a long time by voices and inputs and experiences that you think, if you don't have it, then there is no life for you. That you give a degree of attention to it that then translates into a kind of longing for it that at some point you become convinced that the only way you'll be happy is to have that thing or that person or that accomplishment. That's an idol. And the gospel is here not to rid us of all desires, not to say don't have any more aspirations, not to say longings are bad, but only to put all of our longings and our desires in check and in submission to our longing for him. I have quoted this thick line from Augustine to you before when he says, he loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. That's his prayer to God. He's saying that there are all sorts of things that we might properly love, but at some point we turn our backs on him and say, mine. This one's mine. You can't touch it. You can't meddle with it. You certainly can't take it from me. The way Christ is formed in us is to come to us at the level of our allegiances to confront them. According to Rolling Stone, the second most popular pop song in modern history is by the Rolling Stones, and it's I Can't Get No Satisfaction. In case you were wondering, number one was Bob Dylan, Like a Rolling Stone. Sounds like a little collusion going on here. Um, Why does that Rolling Stones hit, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, stick? Why does it endure? I think it's more than the melody. It's not just a ditty. It's because I think it speaks into something that is true of the human condition. That you and I will, if we're honest with ourselves, know time and time again how much we run after only to find that it was far less than we thought it was from a distance. We are convinced. We are seduced. We draw it in. We think this is going to be it. And then we're like, wow, uh, that relationship, uh, that career, uh, that pastor, mm, I'm getting up close and I'm seeing the truth of it. Maybe it's less than I thought. To have Christ formed in us is to have all other allegiances, even good allegiances, put in submission to our allegiance to him. Because if we don't, they will fool us at first, and then they will kill us softly over time from within. To have Christ formed in us is to get up into the level of our allegiances, but it's also to get up into our face about something that Paul would say is even more insidious. And I won't go into too much detail on this because you've heard him say this for the entirety of this letter. There were those Galatians who had first come to embrace that Jesus is Lord and that by faith in him we belong to God. We have, if you will, a seat at God's table. And then there were other voices that walked in and said this. You know what? The only confidence you might have of having a place in God's plans is if you adopt the entirety of his law. Paul's most jaw-dropping thing that we might hear or that they might hear is this. That the pagan who worships his idol or the atheist that worships his career is no less an offense and no less delusional than the believer who says and says to themselves, if only I will do this, then God will be in my debt. 
But so long as my law keeping is above a certain level, then I may have confidence that I may come to God. And Paul says, you are just as delusional as anybody that might worship wood, hay, or straw. You're his by his prerogative, not by anything that you might impress him with. And therefore, the edge of having Christ formed in you, the part that really hurts that you wish there was an epidural for, but there is none, is the way in which he comes up against you at the level of your allegiances and at the level of your efforts. Okay, great. How do you know, though, that it's, for lack of a better word, working? How how do you know that Christ is being formed in you? And where I'm going to go here is is really into Paul's sort of autobiographical anecdotal comments. Um, This is not some sort of, uh, you know, comprehensive list of how you know. I'm just speaking from what he shares. But I, I think there's two ways in which you might become aware of how Christ is being formed in you. And, and one has to do with um, the way you deal with pain. And then secondly, of the words that you say. Uh, let me take each of those one at a time, because those are crucial. Um, one mark from this passage, as I meditate upon it, that I think is a mark of, of Christ being formed in you, is that you see your pain differently either when you're in it or when you're near it. And if you were listening around verse 13, Paul kind of reminds them, you you know how we met, right? This was, you know, it was not on Match.com. I was sick. I was really sick. Something was up. I needed help. And I wandered into your world. And in the course of our getting to know each other, I shared with you what I knew about Jesus. And you bought it. You were persuaded. The Spirit comes. And then you treated me like I'm royalty. And he says, if you, would have, if you could have gouged out your own eyes, you would have given them to me. And that's why you know, uh, uh, scholars speculate that Paul had this profound eye issue. Um, but whatever happened, these, these Galatians that eventually formed the Galatian churches, they, they received him as nothing less than an angel of the Lord. And it was in the context of that experience of pain that something beautiful came forth. Namely, they heard the gospel and they, they were persuaded. Paul's life, if you study it at all, is full of pain. And more pain that had nothing to do with physical affliction as it did with the, as, a, as a product or as a consequence of his pilgrimage. Study the book of Acts, and he's getting whipped, beaten, reviled, ridiculed, incarcerated, all that. He's got he, to fight for his very life. He knows about pain. And so in the course of his life, he, he's convincing us all, you know what? If you're a believer, if the gospel has come to, to capture you and captivate you, you will not be insulated from pain. In fact, you'll probably be destined for it at some level. And you certainly won't be anesthetized by the gospel when it comes to your pain. Okay, well then, what is a mark of being formed, of having Christ formed in you? I think it's at least this. That you're confronted at your shock of experiencing it. That your pain is real, it's true, it's not illusory, it's real, And the gospel doesn't necessarily explain it. It doesn't provide an answer for it, but it does temper it. It puts it within a way of thinking about it. Even if the pain lessens nothing to a degree, it is understood differently. And in just that little anecdotal memory that Paul resurfaces for them, he would say that through his pain, something beautiful and wonderful came out of it. Something lovely came out of it. But let's be honest with ourselves. How many of us in this room 
are in the midst of pain and are still waiting for some sort of good or fruit to come out of it. Maybe there is no story I'd like to tell about my pain. Maybe there's just the pain. What then? How do you know if Christ has formed in you when that's your experience? Um, George MacDonald, a Scottish uh, theologian and philosopher, uh, kind of all over the map on a lot of things, but C.S. Lewis uh, was never embarrassed to say that every page that he ever wrote was influenced at some level by George MacDonald. And in, a, in an essay he wrote on prayer, George MacDonald wrote this. Kind of looks evil and Rasputinish there, doesn't he? <laughs> Try me, right? Everything difficult indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces. It checks some tendency to abandon the straight path, leaving open only the way ahead. But there is a reality of being in which all things are easy and plain. Oneness, that is, with the Lord of life. To pray for this is the first thing, and to the point of this prayer, every difficulty hedges and directs us. He's saying, essentially, this. In the midst of your pain, you could grow even more bitter towards God. But he's also saying, in your pain, there is an occasion for something beautiful to come as a consequence of it, because nothing like pain can drive you to God. It's no guarantee that in your pain, that it will soften you. In many ways, it might just harden you. But he is acknowledging that while it's too much to say that our pain is necessary, that God gave it to us for some sort of important reason, it is not unrealistic to think that pain can yield something beautiful. And I know we could do a whole sermon series on just that one phrase, and maybe someday we will. But today is not that day. A more recent comment from a woman named Kate Bowler. She's a professor of religion at Duke. She wrote her dissertation studying prosperity gospel preachers. And shortly after she wrote her dissertation, she was diagnosed with a terminal form of cancer. She's in her 40s. She's got a kid. She's got a son. She's a believer, but she wrote a book recently that sort of um, brings her own experience of pain as a believer up against what she heard from so many prosperity gospel preachers. And in a column she wrote in the New York Times a couple weeks ago, she made this comment, which is in some ways answering the way in which Christians feel this reflexive impulse to become a public relations officer for God when somebody starts suffering. Like they've got to sort of make sure, hey, you know what, hey, it's all still working, okay. And so she says in that article, I'm a professor at a Christian seminary, so a lot of Christians like to remind me that heaven is my true home, which makes me want to ask them if they would like to go home before me. Like maybe even now. Now, look, she's speaking from her candor, she's speaking out of her pain, and so there are some things that she might want to nuance later, but hey, we'll let her be raw. She's kind of earned the right to be heard and to be raw a little bit. You don't need to be a public relations officer for God. To have Christ formed in you is to have some of that pain tempered in you, but it's also to be animated to be present to it when somebody's going through it. And so Kate Bowler, at the end of that that column, she speaks, she quotes a dear friend of hers whom she thinks gets it, a theologically informed way of getting it when that friend of hers said, yes, the world is changed, Kate, dear heart. But do not be afraid. You are loved. You are loved. You will not disappear. I am here. That gets it. That's a theologically informed way of being present to somebody who's in it. 
And one way you might know if Christ is being formed in you is that you are animated to be present to it in a way that is not trying to be a public relations for God, but is somebody who is still going to be present to them that they might mediate the presence of God to them. One mark of it is how you deal with pain. Another mark of it, from what I listen to Paul in this passage, is what you do with your words. And I know that these are, those are two categories that are vastly far away from another, but yet they, they meet in the middle, too. When, when he says in verse 16, um, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And, and, and just to sort of put that in context, you know that um, the Galatians listened to him, embraced him, and believed that, and then he hears that they're starting to go for another version of the gospel, which he has already argued is no gospel, and so he's got to get up in their business, like he got up in Peter's business, as we heard in Galatians 2. And so he says, look, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? I am perplexed. I am anguished. You foolish Galatians, he said in chapter 3. Look, he is challenging their fundamental understanding of what they, he's told them before about Jesus. Um, They've grown cool to him. They kind of don't know what to do with him, and they're kind of giving him the stiff arm. And so in a moment like that, Paul is tempted with two possibilities. He can either backpedal and recant and say, you know, forget it. Maybe I was wrong, um, uh, as you were. Or he could go off on them, like go off on them. He doesn't do either, because the gospel won't let him. What we're talking about here. And one indication, one mark of, of Christ being formed in you is that you always have truth and love as distinct but inseparable categories. That there is an inseparability between speaking the truth and doing so in love. You and I kind of fall on one side of a spectrum. Um, we are either prone um, to, to, um, to speaking truth without much interest in whether it does them any good. We just want them to know that we know what the truth is. And we like that. And somehow it gives us satisfaction for a while. And then there are others of us who would, would, wouldn't even think of ever saying something that might unsettle them. Because we just want them to be okay. And yet, sometimes we need to be unsettled. I, I, I need somebody to unsettle me. That's why I have a wife in my life. Um, yeah, you, and, and you'll, you'll pick up on some of that if you come to the women's event this afternoon at 530. Um, I, I dare say it will be rather entertaining at some point. Um, we need people to speak truth into our lives, even if it will unsettle us. Um, telling people what they always want to hear is not always what they need to hear. You know that. And um, telling people off, even if your accusations have absolute basis in fact, just telling them off doesn't serve them either. And Paul gets it. He can't get away from seeing that truth and love are inseparable categories. And that's another important mark of having Christ formed in you. Where does this all go? If, if what it means to have Christ formed in us is to have a kind of knowledge of him that sort of seeps into the, the, the very crevices of our being, that, that acknowledges that we are known through and through and yet loved, and that leads to a kind of intimacy that, that then allows him to to confront us at the level of our allegiances and also our efforts? How does it happen? Where does it go? What does it do? Um, what are the means by which Christ is formed in us? If you heard earlier in the service the passage that Woody read from Philippians 2, you hear Paul say, 
work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who wills and works to carry out his good pleasure in you. You all know that Paul says to the church at Ephesians, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, not by works, lest anybody should boast. But you also know that this salvation is something into which we grow, into something which we are formed. And so by what means does this formation happen? It's clearly not without labor. It's not without labor. It is not a question, friends of mine in this room and visitors, if you're being formed, it's a question about what you're being formed by. So how are we formed? The way Christ is formed in us is in large part because there are people outside of us that are speaking into our lives like that. The Galatians needed Paul to come to them to explain to them who Jesus was, and the Galatians needed a Paul to hold, needed a Paul to hold their feet to the fire to help them remember what the implications of everything he'd already said to them. You can't grow in him apart from a few saints that are around you helping you in that same endeavor. This labor comes from without but it also happens from within. And that's why Paul has spoken at length about the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. We said last week that it is the Holy Spirit's job to, 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 to persuade and to remind and to, to, to assure us that this Jesus is Lord and that by his blood we are his. But I would also say that the Spirit is out there to console us in our weakness and to chastise us in our pride. That this work of having Christ formed in you is as much an external work as it is an internal work, and you need both to go together. It's why we need community, and it's why we need to learn how to listen and to learn how to pray. And I think that those two loci of help from without and from within operate in two ways that help me land this sermon. What does it matter, or what, in what forms does it take? What does it mean to be formed? It's this. Groucho Marx once had a show called What's My Line? There's a question we all need to ask ourselves on a regular basis is, what's my idol? Because nobody develops an idol overnight. Idols are developed, as I've said before, over time, through different voices, through different experiences, through the patterns that you've cultivated, and those things aren't easily shut off, and sometimes you just need somebody that you love. You need to ask them, what do you think I think is too important? Oh, that's going to be a fun conversation. Go to the bed tonight, your spouse, like, what do you think I believe that's too important? Like, okay, enjoy, but necessary. Because you don't know. Because if you knew it was your idol, you probably would, you would probably divest yourself of it at some level. And know this, though, once you ask the question and it becomes exposed, to let it go will not be without pain. It's just the way of things. And it's a good thing. And in, and in the words of Eustace, in uh, the voyage of the Dawn Treader, when Aslan helps rip the scales from his skin as a dragon, he says it hurt like Billy. And you will. You have to ask yourself, what's my idol? And then secondly, you have to let his promises interrogate your premises. And that's just sort of a alliterative way of saying this. You and I, every day, at every moment, are walking around with a certain set of premises or notions, whether they are conscious or unconscious, that's ordering our thinking, our feeling, and our doing. Every one of you, every right now, in real time, 
you are operating by the set of premises. Because of stuff your mom said, or because of stuff your spouse said, or because of what the police officer said to you, who knows? You're operating by a premise. And a lot of those times, those premises are as false as could be. And therefore, it has to be our discipline where we allow the promises that God has shown to us in Jesus to interrogate those premises. It has to be a conscious act. It can't be something that you sort of like wait for it to happen. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren Harrison Warren in that book says, uh, everybody loves a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. Everybody wants this breakthrough in their life spiritually, but they think that it's only going to come by hearing a sermon on a Sunday. Look, as I said, it's not if you're being formed, it's by what. And any of the number of things that you're being formed up today could be erased easily by what you do during Monday through Saturday. And that's why she says it's important for us to consider the liturgy in the ordinary. Because it's then that there is one promise that interrogates every premise, and that is this. In Jesus, God is for you. And if you sit with that, by His Spirit, through His grace, through the love of His saints, you might in fact come to believe it again that you would see Christ formed in you that much more. It's that which we seek. It's that which we long for. It's that which we need because a lot of days we don't long for it. And it's that which I'll pray for right now. Father, what do we love too much? Even good things or people. Father, what are the promises that you've made that we just think are too good to be true? Or that it's just, it can't be that simple? We would ask you by what you've said here and in the friends that we know and the ones that we need to hear from you, to have the hope that's not of this world, that we might see Christ fully formed in us. Oh, help us to be patient. But help us to know that you are in Jesus for us and for that to sink deeply into everything we might know. Amen.